The architectural designs of the ancient world were intimately woven into the narrative of kings and the greatness of nations. Yet as our culture begins to invest less and less in community spaces, we often exchange the stories we tell through our design with expediency. So how do we create worship spaces that can speak to an audience both inside and outside of our four walls? To answer these questions, we are continuing our conversation with Professor Andrew Von Maurer on the purpose and future of worship spaces. If you're not already following us on Facebook and Instagram, you can find us at the handle at AdventNext. Joining me as my co-host is Max Aka, and I'm your host, Kendra Arsenal, and this is Advent Next. But beyond that, like the buildings that really stand out in our minds and our imagination, too, about ancient cultures are these sort of you know, heroic architectural projects like the Acropolis mm. in Athens, the right. pyramids in Egypt, and and uh, in Rome, the, the Roman Forum and the temples that are around there and the Colosseum and so on. Mm. And if you read, you know, the, the most complete, you know, the first uh, comprehensive architectural treatise on the discipline was put together by a man named Vitruvius in about 30 B.C., and in his preface, he's writing, you know, he addresses his preface to the Emperor Augustus. You know, and he writes very sort of matter of fact that the architecture is proof for the majesty mm. and authority of the empire. Mm. Right? Okay. And so, you know, they understood as well then as we do today that buildings have a certain power mm. to communicate authority and communicate majesty. Mm. And... Um, so Pericles, the mayor of Athens, who was in charge at the time that the Acropolis was built in the 5th century BC, you know, he, he talks about, um, you know, the world will wonder about um, this marvelous thing just as future generations will wonder mm. about it. And so he knew even so long ago that people today, in a way, <laughs> would still be flocking to Athens to look at this, what's now really like a dead coral reef, mm. right? right? It's like this thing in ruins and that culture doesn't exist anymore and nobody's worshiping Athena and so on. Right. Um, but those buildings express something about the power mm-hmm. of that civilization and their ideas mm-hmm. as well. They represent something to us. I mean, architecture is often on our money, I mm-hmm. think, for the same reason that it somehow represents ideas, mm-hmm. like the Lincoln Memorial on the penny represents Lincoln and the Gettysburg Address and everything that that was about in a way. And Martin Luther King's speech in front of that building would not have been as powerful if it hadn't been in front of that building. You know, if it had been in front of like a strip mall or something, the images would not be as memorable. And those Mm -hmm. colossal scaled columns, they say something about the authority that that idea has. A really good example is Gothic architecture. Mm. So Gothic architecture technically started in the 12th century in France um, at this abbey called Saint Denis, north of Paris, hmm. um, and uh, you can still go there today. And uh, the abbot, Abbot Suger, he actually documented all a lot of his thoughts about the architectural design, and he was responsible for commissioning all of that. Hmm. Um, and so we know why it was designed the way that it was because he wrote it down. And you you, you discover that it was very intentional. It was intentionally designed to be almost like a portal to heaven, mm. right? To, to, to make you feel like you're coming closer to God. And he makes this analogy, which in my mind is a faulty one, but he, he makes this analogy that 
just like we meditate on the material in order to see the divine, so you meditate on Jesus who was material in order to see the God. Okay. Mm-hmm. If you meditate on the material in the church, mm-hmm. you can see the divine. Mm-hmm. So by meditating on the doors that are made of gold with all this amazing scroll work and everything, you can wow. you can you can in a way meditate on the the divine portal and come closer right. to, Helps to, to transcend us right. into something beyond. And so. Um, you know, I think it's helpful to know that because mm-hmm. what it means is that the people who built these buildings, the built, people designed the buildings and commissioned them, you know, they had a particular purpose in mind. Mm-hmm. And and I don't want to denigrate the faith of individual builders who helped participate in the construction of that. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sure many of them were genuinely um, uh, giving a free will offering mm-hmm. in their labors and so on. So that's not for us to judge. But at the same time, there is um, a particular theology that's behind those buildings right. and they're very powerful right. in the way that they accomplish their task. Right. And so, um, so today you fast forward to the 1950s neo-Gothic building, right. right? Architecture, collegiate Gothic architecture has been used for a long time to evoke mm. authority in institutions of academia. That's mm. true. I so mean, I went you, to UCLA and it's very Gothic in that way. Brick buildings, they're very beautiful. Yeah, and if you yeah. go to a lot of the old Ivy League campuses, right, they were redone specifically in this Gothic style mm. after they had not started Gothic, mm. right? Mm. They, they were started in, in different sort of Federalist styles and different things like that. And then later on, people came, architects came uh, in the late 19th, early 20th century and, and started to really associate Gothic architecture with things like Oxford, mm which was the good model for moral education mm. and, and high levels of achievement. Right. And so Gothic architecture in a campus setting kind of equated a certain academic authority, mm. and, and, uh, or at least it suggested that. Right. And, and, uh, and so um, I'm sure that that wasn't lost entirely on people mm. here at Andrews either, and, and maybe not very consciously. Maybe it just became part of the culture. Mm. You know, this is sort of part of our sort of American culture in the mid-20th century is Mm. associating Gothic with religious architecture. So, you know, meanings can shift and change. um, Mm. But uh, I think it's a good question to ask, like, what drives our decision-making? Why do we design the way that we design? Yeah. And I think that now we have kind of this shift that we're moving into a, a different kind of culture where we're making more of like the warehouse churches. And I think that's kind of a, a pushback against something that looks overtly religious on the exterior and we're trying to be more nondescript. What is your take on kind of the, the warehouse design of churches? Um, there's some good reasons that different congregations might use very utilitarian buildings. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, for example, and also the idea of recycling an existing building in a lot of ways makes a lot of economic sense, maybe may even make environmental sense. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it may be a good act of stewardship on behalf of the congregation at that moment. Um, and so I think you have to be careful not to like broad brush it and, and, and try and apply the same rule for every single congregation. Mm. Um, and many amazing uh, miracles have probably happened in warehouse churches, and mm. God has probably uh, met many individuals um, who have discovered him and, and, and met him uh, personally in those same buildings. Mm. So, so I don't, I don't want to somehow suggest, like, oh, these buildings are... <laughs> nothing good can come from them or, or, or be excessively judgmental about them. Um, but at the same time, uh, I, I think that it is true that if if every building becomes like a warehouse, 
every building other than our individual homes becomes like a warehouse, then I think we lose something. Mm. Um, you know, we have the capacity in the way that we build our communities and the way that we build our buildings that have shared value to communicate something, to mm. communicate um, about what we believe, to have those buildings reflect our values. I'm, I was struck by that when I went to Europe this summer again with my students. I went to Stockholm, one of the places we went to. And in Sweden, 80% of people don't even believe that a God exists anymore. Mm. And yet when you walk around in Stockholm, you have all of these buildings that testif you know, testify to a God. You have all these old churches and mm. many times there's Bible verses over the doors and mm. different sayings and, and, and prayers that are written on handrails. And, mm. you know, there's this one that always you know, gets me, which is a prayer that, that asks for the, the bells of faith to never uh, uh, finish ringing in the north. Mm. Uh, wow. This idea that, that, that people will always believe mm. uh, in, in Scandinavia. And, of course, we know that now people walk by those buildings and those buildings don't mean the same to them anymore. Um, but we, nonetheless, we have this opportunity for our environment to speak mm. in a certain way. Mm. And, uh, and, and if all of the buildings that we build are equal, if they're all warehouses, then, then you can't speak anymore. Then, mm. everything, then everything is the same. Mm. And, and, and I think it, it also reduces everything to a sort of utilitarian mm. message as well, mm. that there is nothing worth celebrating beyond sort of putting a roof over it. Right. Um, and so I think that's something that, that is a missed opportunity, I guess I would mm. say. Mm. But I think it, the, way, the reason that it's happening, I think, today is reflective of not just cultural trends, just in building in general, which we talked about earlier, but it's also, I think, reflective in terms of our evolving preferences in worship. Mm. And so, you know, if, if we choose to worship differently, like one of the you know, trends right now that you mm. see in the you know, sort of evangelical church, for example, is you see a, a, a huge emphasis on um, almost like a theatrical experience and sensory experience where, mm. where, where the, the main experience in the building is really about um, lights, light, special effects. Mm -hmm. um, it's about uh, things like, yeah, smoke, mm -hmm. music, mm -hmm. um, and a sort of uh, almost a theater in a way, mm -hmm. performance like a performance, mm -hmm. um, and sound, um, maybe video, mm -hmm. uh, imagery. Um, but the building is in a sense irrelevant, mm -hmm. right? right? Like it's a black box. Mm -hmm. And you have to ask yourself, like, do you need a PMC in order to run that kind of mm -hmm. operation? Mm -hmm. you, you really don't. Right. And so the warehouse, in a way, makes perfect sense because really where, you're, where you want to put your money is in the PA systems and in the video mm -hmm. systems and all, all of the gear that makes it possible to have a, a, a different kind of worship experience. Mm. And so I, I think that's also important to recognize, you know, the history of church architecture has included um, a strong emphasis at times on a sensory experience. Um, and in fact, like if you go to the old Jesuit churches in Rome, they were very theatrical buildings, right? Like these, these remarkable paintings that were done in such a way so that you can't tell where architecture begins and painting ends. Mm. And this amazing, you know, symbiosis between music and incense and architecture and painting and sculpture and movement, all of those things sort of come together to create an emotional experience in worship, which is really overpowering and really beautiful. Mm. Um, but it's exactly that sort of, 
maybe overemphasis on the emotional quality of worship that later on the reformers were really skeptical of because they were interested in clarity and also in the mind. Like, do you end up with a building in a way being designed to overemphasize a certain kind of emotional experience when really part of the worship experience requires clarity of thought right. and, and, and a clear connection um, with, the, with the Lord from, from the standpoint of the mind? And, and, and where is that balance? How do we and, and incorporate how, both? How yeah, do we incorporate right. reason and also get yes. a place for the emotion to be expressed? Yeah, so like I said, yeah. it's mainly a caution, not really like a big judgment or anything, but I think it's worth thinking about that history mm. and, and, and as we sort of design our worship spaces for the future, you know, keeping that sort of history in mind. How do we incorporate both? You know, I was just doing some research on the, the Romantic movement, you know, and how that was kind of a a counter-enlightenment movement, you know, where you had everything based on reason and logic, but that there was no place for emotion and individual expression. And so if we're not having a place that can balance and facilitate both of these well, then you're going to get kind of a pull and you're going to have a reaction to it one way or another. Absolutely. Something that was really interesting to me, kind of like at the beginning end, beginning end, the beginning part of this decade, like the 2010s, Um, there was a lot of conversation happening around, especially like charismatic evangelicals, young charismatic evangelicals who have grown up essentially in an extremely conservative, um, like theologically conservative denomination, but within this very exuberant, expressive worship environment, um, essentially like coming into their 20s or 30s, um, becoming much more politically, socially liberal and gravitating, interestingly, towards liturgical worship formats Mm. Mm. um, and wanting to be in environments where there's like a much more structured worship service Mm. and especially these beautiful, architecturally more vibrant Mm. spaces. And part of the idea was that it connects you to something, I mean, you use the word history, but that it connects us to something more ancient, something that has longevity to it. It's just this strange phenomenon that that occurred, you know, within this group of people like, oh, I need to revitalize my worship experience. You know what? I need liturgy. Mm. Uh, And, and, you know, that's, I think it's, it speaks something interesting to like, what is our context? What, what does a new generation of 21st century millennials, Gen Z's, what do they want out of a worship experience? And is it the, the rock show in the warehouse or Mm -hmm. is it, is it the uh, the spectacle in the ancient cathedral? Mm-hmm. Because those both seem to have an appeal. Um, and we, we seem to only ever narrow in on one. Just mm-hmm. like, oh, they want they want the pop band or whatever. And it's like, maybe they don't. Maybe they want this this thing that makes you feel connected to like an ancient tradition. Right. Um, maybe and they want again, both. <laughs> maybe they want both. Yeah, who knows, right? You do that. <laughs> Get a beautiful building and then put blank black walls all up the thing and cover it and do a light show. I don't know. Who knows? Yeah, yeah. But uh, it definitely th- speaks to the mission context of a mission. generation. And I think that's important, you know, like, and I think we talked about this a long time ago, but like how do we contextualize, you know, the buildings that we that we make for mission purpose? Mm. Because, you know, if you are reaching for people who maybe are very skeptical of religion, maybe going with the overt religious building is not the way to go because mm-hmm. there's all this connotation and, and skepticism around religion in general. So mm-hmm. how do you find a way to ease yourself into that community in a way that's non-threatening and kind of inviting? So when we're thinking about mission, we're mm-hmm. thinking about church planting, um, I think that you just got um, 
you're on a, on a new board, right, for mm-hmm. uh, church planting and kind of consulting mm-hmm. the architecture. How much is mission considered as far as how you're going to design a church? Well, yeah, I mean, I think that should be a really high priority. I mean, we talked about this earlier, like how can a building facilitate improved witnessing? Um, you know, Alan White is asked about style and in, in worship spaces. Mm. And her response was that there's going to be many different kinds of solutions for many different kinds of places. And mm. she points to the breastplate of the high priest and talks about all the different gems and different colors and how you know the church is like that. Mm. And that there will be different solutions for different kinds of congregations and different kinds of places. And I think that sort of, you know, recognizes the diversity of people and, and communities that are out there. And and uh, so so it's it's hard to sort of put a blanket sort of, um, I, I don't know if it's really wise for us to have like an Adventist architectural style mm. or, like a, or like a rule book of our, here's how you're exactly supposed to do it. Mm. Um, I, because that sort of would, it doesn't really recognize the reality of, of who we are and the needs that we have in different places and the different parts of the world. Mm. Uh, even in the same community, sometimes different congregations have totally different needs. Right. And, and so, um, but at the same time, it's really interesting when you, when you take a look at what uh, the council that Ellen White, for example, gives on church building is she always gravitates to sort of cautioning towards simplicity, mm. um, towards uh, substantial um, buildings that are not just cheap, uh, but have like a, a durability and a longevity to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and she, uh, you know, she talks about the buildings having a simplicity that that reflects, you know, the you know the the perfection that God expects of His people. And and so there's sort of a that's a pretty high standard <laughs> if you think about it. Like the buildings, in a way, have to sort of speak of that mm-hmm. in a way. And so, um, uh, and so, so I think. I really appreciate her emphasis on on simplicity, mm-hmm. and I, I think when she mean when she, when she uses the word simplicity, I don't think that she's talking about like a, a like a boring simplicity or some kind of perfunctory functionalism. Um, but I think she's she's kind of trying to boil it down to the essence of like what is the essence of what you're trying to achieve with the building, right? Mm-hmm. You're trying to glorify God. You're trying to facilitate certain activities. You're trying to witness to people. And so when you're asking like how do you consider mission as part of the design and sort of building of a church, I mean, if you don't consider mission, then why are you building something in the first place? Right. Like, like our, the role of a church building is not just to house the people who are already worshiping. It's also to grow the congregation mm. and to speak of our Heavenly Father in the community and, and to invite others into, you know, a life of joy um, and and uh, and fellowship, mm. and so there's all you know there's a, all these different aspects to the mission of the church, and the building has to be sort of conceived with those things in mind, rather than just well we need 200 people in this building and we need a baptismal pool and we need you know two bathrooms and you know you just have your programmatic list, mm. um, but but there's there's a whole way of thinking about the behavior of the building, right? Right. Um, and, and how it how it reaches out and helps you as an individual individual believer and as a community to reach out. So. Mm-hmm. Mm. I think you kind of answered some of my question. I was going to ask you about sacred space and is there such a thing as sacred space based off of how a building is designed? But you kind of answer that in like, you know, when you're talking about thinking missional in the architecture. Is there anything you would want to add to that question though? Well, 
so it, the whole thing with sacred space is, first of all, you have to be very careful, like, what do you mean when you say sacred space, right? Mm. Of course, in the Old Testament, you know, that was a different understanding of how God dwelled with the people, right? Mm. Um, and so, of course, today, you know, like, we think of ourselves as the temple and the church as, as the believers, the body of believers is the temple. That's where God dwells. Mm. And, and so we have to be really careful. Like, what do we mean, what do we mean when we say sacred? Mm. Um, and, you know, only God really has the ability to declare a place to be sacred, right? Like when he tells Moses to take the sandals off and it's like, this is holy ground, right? Like right. he's declared this to be sacred. Oh, but, but he's also declared, like, for example, the Garden of Eden in a way was like, a sacred place. It was a place for you to be with God, right? And the whole point of the entire biblical narrative is all about restoring that sacred place, mm. right? Like that that ability for us to dwell with God again in the same physical place, right? And so um, that's really what everything is essentially about. And so um, I think we we set aside. Um, places for relationships, like in our homes, we build living rooms and we have front porches where we can have relationships with neighbors and we build family rooms and so on, right? Like mm-hmm. these are places for relationships. Yeah. And as communities, we do those kinds of things. Like historically, you build town squares and plazas or meeting halls and churches, of course. Mm-hmm. You know, those are spaces set aside for relationships. Um, we set aside time because God has asked us to set aside time mm-hmm. for him. And there was this description of the Sabbath that I've heard before, which I really love, which is a palace, a palace in time. In time yeah. And and in a similar way, we can set aside places for relationship with God. So, you know, I always do my morning devotional in the same place in the house that has morning sun coming in. Mm-hmm. And that's like this place for me to have like, to, you know, of course, I can do that in other places as well, mm. but I can set that place aside for myself. Um, we can set aside a sanctuary in a church building for special relationship with God. And that's why we ask our children not to go crazy in those spaces, you know, mm. and, and or that's why certain things don't happen in those places. You know, you show like a certain reverence mm. because this is a certain place that has to do with a special relationship with God. And, and and so I think, yeah, sacred spaces in that sense are possible where we can, we can decide and put aside these things and we can design them in such a way to facilitate that relationship. Is it comfortable? Does it remind us of him? Does it allow his, his glory to be evident? Like if you have, you know, natural light, I think is really key in, in, in interior spaces. Um, if you have views of the mountains don't close yourself off from them. If you have the ability, you know, Ellen White talks a lot about the home having a constant contact with the outdoors, mm. you know, because that allows us to see that first book of, you know, of Revelation, this idea that God can be revealed through nature. And if we, if we close ourselves off from that, mm. by the way that we design our buildings, that doesn't help. Yeah. Right. Um, and uh, so let's let's make it easy. Let's make it convenient for people to connect with God in that way. Mm. And so... Yeah, I think sacred, it's, it's important to think about it, but I would be hesitant to, to call it anything more than setting aside a special place for mm. a relationship. It, when you read through like Moses and Ezekiel and the different blueprints that are in the Bible, like what are some of the meditations that you take through kind of looking at God's kind of blueprints and architectural plans? And what do you think we should be reading out of them as we read it, just kind of as, as lay members? 
Yeah, so um, there's a seminary professor, Joanne Davidson, mm-hmm. who wrote a book called, the I think it's called The Theology of Beauty. She's going to be on later on this month. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, in The Theology of Beauty that she wrote, yeah. She has some chapters on architecture. Mm. And um, I really appreciated her writing that book because um, she points out how much emphasis God places on the design of, especially the tabernacle. And just mm-hmm. like, you know, I think the way that she put it was it's like of all the topics in scripture, that topic consumes more space in scripture than any other single topic. It's just the amount of space that's dedicated to describing mm. the precision and the detail and the design and the colors and, you know, how many of this and who made what and so on. Um, and so he obviously cares mm-hmm. and, that that, and that that would be preserved. You know, it matters somehow. Right. And so um, that blueprint, that, as you call it. And so I think the reason it matters is because the tabernacle is about God's way of salvation, right? Mm-hmm. That he, the, and, it, and it is the most important and the most beautiful plan Ever, des- ever devised mm-hmm. for our benefit mm. with no merit of our own. And so it's this amazing gift that he's given us and he's laid it out and that building in a way describes it, right? It, 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 it illustrates and it only illustrates it if we participate mm. in the building, right? Like mm. the building on its own is just the blueprint, but if you participate in it and if you remember what it's about, mm. it, it teaches you about God's most amazing plan, mm. salvation. And so that's that's why the tabernacle is so important to study also, right? I mean, there's all these theological reasons that other people, of course, are more qualified to speak about um, and how understanding the tabernacle helps you understand other books in Scripture and so on. But, uh, but you know, I think as a designer, I can relate to that, that architecture is not about architecture. It's about bigger things. Mm. And so when God is describing this architecture in there, it's not about the tabernacle. It's about his plan to save us. Mm. And so it's, it's essential. It's crucial. And it's, and it's unfortunate that so many of us have sort of discarded it as just sort of an Old Testament thing mm. that's sort of of the past and sort of this awkward small building, mm. you know, that got carried around. It's a temporary building. It's not even like a, <laughs> yeah. you know, a permanent building. Yeah. Um, but but uh, it's really a critical uh, thing to learn about. And I think it's a really beautiful way of God using architecture to describe his purpose for us and his plan for us. This has been a thorough run-through on the history of sacred space and the future of worship design. Once again, we'd like to thank our guest, Professor Andrew Von Maurer, and thanks to the Adventist Learning Community for making this program possible. We would like to invite our listeners to submit questions or topics that you'd like us to tackle in the future. And if you're listening to this program on any of our social media platforms, be sure to comment, like, and subscribe, and see you next week.